Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Heights of Humanity. For those of you who do not already know me or are listening for the first time, my name is Jason Bott. At the time of recording this, I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Texas at Austin studying geophysics. To summarize the core purpose of this podcast, I want to delve into the minds and lives of knowledgeable and successful individuals throughout various fields. I want to publish the insights, tools for success, deep knowledge of their specific niches, and more in an attempt to provide my audience with valuable wisdom that you all can take with you on your own journeys of growth and self-improvement. On top of that, I mean, who doesn't like listening to wildly interesting people telling crazy stories about their lives? Since this is a very special episode, I would like to take a moment to thank all the amazing people who helped make this happen. I'd like to thank everyone in my life who listened to my pretty crazy idea of starting a podcast as a college undergrad and didn't laugh at me. To all the people who believed in me and supported me on this journey to making this happen, thank you very much. Your support does not go unnoticed. I'd like to thank a great friend who helped me make, in my humble opinion, the amazing logo for the podcast. I really couldn't ask for a better one, so thank you. I'd like to thank my buddy Chase for recording a mock episode with me and for giving me constructive feedback that helped me with the making of this episode. Finally, I'd like to give a big shout out to my friend Lou, who's been taking care of the technical side of the podcast. Now, joining me today is Dr. Michael Perch. Dr. Perch is a professor and research lead at the University of Texas at Austin. He specializes in a branch of geoscience called geostatistics, whereby he uses statistics, artificial intelligence, and deep learning technology to make simulations and models of subsurface phenomena. In addition to his academic career, Dr. Perch was also a high-performing and high-ranking researcher at Chevron for over 13 years. This long tenure in both academia and industry gives him a super unique perspective that you really won't find with many other professors and researchers. Expect to hear about everything from mining truck close calls to AI and the future of oil and gas in a world headed towards net zero emissions. I hope you all enjoy listening to this episode as much as I loved recording it. Now, without further ado... Yeah, go for it. Okay, ready? Yeah. Ready? Good okay, go. without further ado, Dr. Michael Perch, everybody, how are you doing today? Uh, really good, Jason. Thank nice. you very much for having me today. Yeah, no I appreciate problem. the chance to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate you being on here. Um, I think I'm going to start with some kind of general, uh, more philosophical questions. Um, firstly, what does success mean to you? You know, when you strive for success in your life, what exactly are you striving for? So I don't like to be pessimistic, but I'm going to answer the opposite. What does failure look like to me? I'm going to start there, but I promise you by the end, I'll be positive. I grew up in a a really poor family, and there was a lot of uh, issues at home, like alcoholism and all those kinds of things that go along with that. And I knew that I wanted to be in a circumstance that was not limited like that. I knew that that was a terrible way to live. Um, I knew that I wanted my children to have better opportunities than I had. And so for me, success was always about escape, getting out of that type of limited circumstance, never being in a position 
where I would have regret, look and say, well, I could have done more. I could have got more education. I could have had more opportunity. If only I would have made different decisions. For me, success was to live a life that didn't have those types of regrets. I told you I'd get positive by the end. (laughs) Okay, okay. And that's a mentality that you've had since the beginning. Um, Has that changed with time? Has kids changed that? I, I think in a way, kids are a catalyst. So if you were worried about stability, financial security, you're worried about providing for others around you, having children will definitely amplify that effect. I had children pretty early. Actually, I was unusual from the standpoint I was married in my first year of engineering. So I started having my kids right at the beginning of my grad school. And so I went through putting myself through school and also providing for, you know, the kids and all the other, you know, the needs they had all at the same time. And so the children definitely caused me to think a lot about how do I, how am I successful so I can provide them with a secure future for sure. And so, I mean, that ties in perfectly to my next question, which is like what, so you have your general idea of success and then you have that like I want to escape that escape is what drives you and the kids are what drives you right is there anything else that you think is uh I mean it seems like you got so much stuff going on yeah so so uh, you know that's what gets you started but then I I gotta tell you so um a, a really kind of funny story is that um back when I was in grade 11 I, I went to see the guidance counselor um, because I was, I was really excited to, about engineering. I'd met my first engineer the night before in a gas station. He'd explained to me something about the Carnot theoretical heat cycle, or heat engine, and all that. And I was really excited about that. So I went to see the guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor was spent about 20 seconds looking through my, my grades, looked at me and said, university is not for everybody, Michael. So, so I had, I had that experience of like, oh my gosh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm not getting where I need to get. I I had a little bit of that wake up moment, right? So I was, I, I turned it around. I got honors. I got the grades I needed. I got into university. But when I was there, I was so in love with the circumstance being surrounded by like really intelligent professors, fellow students who were all engineers and geoscience, what students all working really hard on a common task. I just ate everything up. I'm one of those students who didn't miss class ever. I like loved all the things I was learning. I was just amazed that I had the opportunity to, to, to learn. And so, so learning has always been my thing. And um, I always had that attitude. A good example for me is right near the end of my PhD. I programmed a whole bunch in Fortran and, um, uh, I'd done a little bit in like Excel visual, uh, what do they call visual basic for applications, stuff like that. Well, I, uh, Chevron was going to offer me a job in their like super awesome research center down in Houston. But they said, in order to take this job, you need to know C++. I'm like, well, it's about time I found out how to do that. So I spent like two weeks focused and just learned how to like do object oriented programming, get myself ready so I could do that. So at every turn, I love that whole take on the challenge, learn something new. Because every time you learn new knowledge, it's power. Mm-hmm. Like you can do the whole world. It just becomes like new avenues and opportunities for you. So learning has always really excited me. Yeah, it almost seems like to me that like 
you had this um you you had a, a lot of hardship early in life so the hardship later in life or these little challenges later in life seem a lot easier you know like you went through everything as a kid you had this huge wake up call you had kids right at the beginning of grad school and that's going to come with tremendous challenges right so learning c++ to get into chevron is seems easy is that pretty accurate yeah. I, I i think that's a good a good way to put it is a lot of things kind of gave me this perspective i um somewhere before starting university i spent a couple of years in africa and i was in tanzania living in uh, what they call rapid urban unsurveyed development which i think the um the term for it is squatter camps basically um people living in shacks and while i lived in that environment i caught malaria like three times in one year like wow. I, I had the kind of like, you know, we, we rarely had clean water. We never had power. You know, you're just living in this very, very difficult circumstance. I got to tell you now, I, I made the joke right before we started that my check engine light had just come on in my Jeep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to the things I saw and the, and the, and the challenges. And, and, and in all sincerity, like um, I saw people die of like unclean food and water you know, dysentery type stuff. Yeah. And and so, you know, recognizing that I'm just surrounded by so many great opportunities, it, it, it really does give you that perspective all the time that oh, mm-hmm. it, it could be worse. You know, we're fortunate. We're fortunate. Like negativity ironically breeds optimism. That's that's the way I, I interpret it from you. you. You know, it's very interesting. Like if I was to be really critical about myself, what proportion of my motivation comes from fear, versus love or trust or joy. You know what I'm saying? Like how much of it is positive versus negative? And um, I think I'd hope that it's not mostly fear. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I think students know this. You know this. You know that whole like, oh, I may fall behind in the course. I better do the assignments. I better watch the lectures. I better attend. Oh, I'm going to have, um, if I get a poor grade, I'm not going to have this opportunity in the future versus this course is enjoyable and I love this and I want to learn this, right? So I hope, I hope that, in fact, it's mostly excitement. Mm-hmm. You, you, but I think we can always be very critical about ourselves and try to do an analysis of what that is. But I'd agree with you that, in a way, fear was a catalyst that helped me escape the life I grew up in. And then once I saw the opportunity, I had no idea. I had no idea what the opportunities were. But when, when I got into university and I saw all the things we could learn, oh, my gosh. You know, do you remember those experiences when you For show sure. up on campus and you go to like mechanical engineering and got like a cross section of a gen engine and you sit there and you go like, we learned that. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So I remember last week we talked or not last week. I'm sorry. Uh, three weeks ago now, um, we talked a bit about giving away your research and code for free and kind of just like um, optimistically doing these things for free. And I want to revisit this a little bit to you. What's the benefit of giving away your educational tools um, for free? Is that like, you know, a moral decision, business decision? And I I think um, Jason really, it's good to kind of level set this. And, And when we talk about giving this stuff away, we're talking about like, hundreds and hundreds of well-documented workflows and codes and packages and Python and so forth, like probably representing, I, I, I've had people joke with me, they'll look at it and they'll be like, how many hundreds of hours did you spend on this? 
Like it's, it's a huge body of work. Okay. And so there is some thought about what you do. How do you manage that? Right. And um, let me go back to my story of how I became an engineer. It happened because I was, um, when I was at the gas station, this random engineering student, just can you imagine this? We're in a cold evening night. There's a gas pump between us. He's filling up a car. I'm filling up a car. Mine was a junker. I was working full time in high school. Mm -hmm. I'm sleeping all day because I'm tired. And this guy looks at me and after a short conversation points at my car and says, do you know how that works? Like, can you imagine that question? I'm like, uh, four stroke something. You know, I, you know, I had driven motorcycles. I knew something about four stroke, two stroke or something. He said, no, no, the theory. He drew, he drew on my, in the frost on my windshield, the Carnot theoretical cycle. And then he explained to me that he's working with advanced materials to try to have an engine operating at higher temperatures so they can increase that volume, that area, mm. and have greater efficiency in this engine. Okay, so what did I learn that day? Knowledge is power. And that guy gave me something. And, and what was interesting, he taught it to me in a way that I could understand it. And that empowered me. I went away from that and I went to the guidance counselor. I said, okay, I want to be an engineer. I can do this. So how do I look at it now? Every single time I give something away, it's kind of like I'm standing in a gas station. It's kind of like I have no idea who's going to be this person who receives this. And so my challenge now is to make everything I do accessible so that person who receives it can understand like I did. And it's, an, it's a secret invitation. It's an invitation to everybody that you can join us. You can do this. You can learn and, and get powerful things doing that. Okay, so that's the, that's the first thing. That's, the, that's kind of um, the altruistic and I'd say it's a spiritual thing. To me, that's a spiritual way of thinking, like to see everybody around us as brothers and sisters and we can lift others, I think is really fantastic. Okay, can I tell you the business idea? Yeah, Okay. Sure. That, that, that you know, Right, right. There's always got to be another side and the other mm-hmm. side is the business idea. And it goes like this. A professor always has their hat in their hand. Like, I don't know if you all know this, but um, one third of my time teaching, one third of my time researching and leading research and one third of my time fundraising trying to get money to support my students. Okay. And so what I realized very quickly was um, I went on social media and I started to say, yeah, I'm a professor and I work on this and nobody cared. Hey, I'm a professor and I teach this. Nobody cared. They only start to care when I start to give them something, a product, uh, something that they could benefit from. And so what I realized was that if I give everything away, it's not just students in my classes who benefit it's going to be the people out in the companies. And then when those people use it, they'll start to be, okay, where does that come from? That's where the expertise is. That's what we need to fund. That's what we need to support. That's what we need to hire. And so they start hiring my students. They start funding my students. And so it was really kind of this really nice synergy. And I got to tell you, it's working. I, go to, I can't go to you know, an energy company, walk down the hall without somebody calling out, it's a geostats guy. You see what I'm saying? And so another thing that's kind of tied into is branding, right? The way I look, the way I act and so forth. I'm a little distinct. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The way I am on my recording my videos, the way I am in reality, people recognize me. And so it's all part of this branding and this. So there is kind of a, I wouldn't call it sinister, but it is planned. There's a planned kind of business approach to it. Nice, nice. I, I enjoy how you 
have that moral side and then you know the business side as well um now to segue into another question i have asked a lot of hardworking people i know this which is you know how do you find balance and it seems like everyone is a little different in this regard you know some some people i talk to just love to work they don't need a balance work is their it's how they play you know work is their play and then other people you know it's like okay i'm gonna uh work five days a week and i'm gonna go out saturday night um so what is your balance like yeah well so first of all if you've got someone you can introduce me to who knows better how to how to have a great work-life balance i want to meet them because they could probably mentor me on that uh when you're a new professor, you have a lot to do to get started. I just got full professor in September. There was a huge amount of work to go from zero to full professor in six years. Yeah, congratulations. And thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's exciting. It really is nice. Um, but I have to admit, when it comes down to it, I like to code. I really like to code. To me, good code is like writing poetry. It's like painting a picture. I do draw. To me, it's the same neurons the same type of dopamine fix that comes from drawing a really good picture finishing that up as writing really good code that makes really cool data science illustrations Mm -hmm. so i have to admit some days i hide and code (laughs) i'll literally like i'll be unavailable and just code And, and that to me is a little bit of a micro vacation now then there's something else i do i'm i'm an outdoorsy person and you all know you came kayaking with me. We did kayaking there. Mm-hmm. I have eight kayaks in my garage. You saw my garage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I kayak every week. Yeah. And what I've done, which is kind of really cool, is I have a, day, a weekly kayaking trip Saturday morning, and I'll just take people. So students that I work with, graduate students, they'll show up weekly and come kayaking with me. Professors in the school come. Sometimes if there's nobody coming, I'll just send out a message saying, anybody show up, I'll take you kayaking. And guess what? One week I had three professors show up. One of them was from McCombs Business School. I'd never met them. One was from Civil Engineering. And I think the other one was Mackey or something like that. Just three random professors went kayaking with me. Okay, now that's beneficial. It's all networking. It's all kind of building the team with my graduate students, but it's sharing something I love. And so, and I'll tell you, when I take people kayaking, I'm like the outfitter. I'm sharing it, brand new kayakers. I took one of my grad students and they brought their um, fiance. She was so afraid of kayaking. I didn't, I didn't recognize that first. Does she froze in the boat? Well, I went out there and I kind of talked her down. I, I used a rope to attach to the front of her boat. I towed her around to get her comfortable in the boat. By the end of the trip, it was hard to keep up with her. We let her loose and she just took off. And so what do I say? I say that was a win for Professor Perch that day. You yeah. know, I was a good mentor that day. Okay, so what do I do? I integrate a lot of my activities and the things I love and I share them and it becomes all part of my overall professor life. It all fits in. Okay. So it's, yeah. So like the, you have found your niche that you love and then just dived into it and tried to uh, put it into as many aspects of your life as possible. Yeah. My, my 30 minute drive to school every day, I drive in a Jeep with no doors, no roof. And I do that even if it's raining. That's all part of my, I just love having the fresh air on my face. It it becomes like a a time to think on the way home in the evening. In the dark, you at the starry sky above you. You're driving in a Jeep in the country roads. It all fits together. Mm -hmm. So so to me, it it becomes very efficient. 
it definitely becomes very efficient. Now, you mentioned how statistically you shouldn't be in the position today. I remember you saying that when we met before. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, are there huge obstacles? Did you have crazy close calls? Yeah, at every single step, I feel like the universe has just been kind to me. Like, I have so much to be grateful for. A guidance counselor who, who struck, he, he struck the right balance to basically motivate me, but not to deter me. Because let's face it, he made me mad. He made me scared, and he made me react. He could have said something that was kind of more kind of gentle on me, and I may have just kind of kept rolling along, working seven, you know, five days a week, full time hours while going to high school. I would have, and I wouldn't have been where I was. Then when I got in, I happened to. It was a struggle to kind of quickly kind of pick it up and get myself where I needed to be. I happened to get into the University of Alberta in the engineering class when it had been historically a year that dropped a little bit. Not the standards. I'm not saying I got in because the standards were low, but I'm saying I did benefit from having a slightly less competitive year. So I got into the program. Okay. Then I got into the, I got scholarships to do my entire PhD because I'm low income. I didn't, I I didn't know how I was going to do that. I got scholarships to do my PhD, my undergraduate education. I got into a co-op program, which allowed me to work half time to get through that. Chevron, I got discovered. Somebody came to one of the consortium meetings and found me and said, hey, we don't ever hire people from here, but and this person's about to graduate their PhD. Why don't we bring him in on an off-cycle internship January to February? Because we want to try this person out. So they were that excited about my work that they made, you know, they had to like move some stuff in the system to get me there in San Francisco for this internship. And then they loved my work. And then take it all the way to the University of Texas at Austin. I was hired with tenure. The only professor in 2017 that I understand to be hired with tenure without having tenure at a pure institution. Congrats again. I was hired right from industry with that. Yeah. You know, I, they should have offered me assistant professor. And I got to be honest, uh, with all the experience and, and my salary and everything, my children and the people depended on me, I wouldn't have taken the position. I only took it because it was such an honor and, and to come here with tenure. Yeah. So at every step, it could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So I do feel very fortunate to be here. Yeah, I... I do like that. Um, I mean, you. It seems like you've worked very hard, though. I mean, I. Uh, I know you were pretty highly ranked in your undergrad at Alberta, and it does seem like you've had a lot of luck, but you've had a lot of hard work and a lot of time spent that's opened those doors for you. And Jason, thanks for rescuing me from that. So, just before anyone here thinks that you know I was kind of a slacker in school. Um, yes, I was fortunate to get in the year I got in, but I did graduate number one in my engineering class. Yeah. And I did, you know, in everything, I was, you know, working very hard, rank number one. Um, when it came to Chevron, that internship, mm-hmm. um, I learned C++ actually right before that internship, I rem- if I remember right. And so at every step, the, ch- the opportunity was there, and I rose to the occasion. Now, what does that mean? I had a great PhD advisor, Clayton Deutsch, University of Alberta. He was fantastic, actually. And we used to run together. And while we'd run, he would share, he'd mentor. 
he'd like share his knowledge with me. And we're running along one time, smack talking each other as we always do. We, we would always be smack talking. We'd be like, hey, hey, Deutsch, you have anything left in the well? Are you going to be able to, can you run another 5K? You know, that kind of thing. And he'd be like, I don't know, Perch. Are you going to be able to do it? You know, that kind of thing. Well, at one point, I remember him just looking at me and saying, Michael, you know you make your own good luck. That's what he told me. And, and that's exactly what you just said. I really like that, yeah. You make your own good luck. And it, it is, I, I do believe that. I, I feel fortunate, but I also feel proud. I do recognize that that there's a lot of th- things that worked out because I was willing to work very hard for it. Yeah. Yeah, my, in my limited experience of life so far, I've found that uh, you do kind of make opportunities for yourself. You know, like everyone has opportunities and it's more like, can you work hard enough to put yourself in the position to get as many opportunities as you can? Yeah. Um, there's, there's another thing, Jason, if I can share this, is that a lot of it is also, what do you do when things go wrong? Because they will go wrong. And it, it has to do with your mentality. And this is something I had some really good mentoring on. This attitude of if things go wrong, to blame, avoid, hide, and so forth is known as lower looping. And it's, a lot of people talk about it's lower looping, and it's, it's very dangerous because you don't learn from it. I always, if I look back, I can say, when I made mistakes, I faced them. I lived, I, I, I owed up to them. I said, okay, I did this wrong. And then what I did is I immediately, I was honest about it, transparent about it, and then I looked at what can I do to fix it and to move forward and not do that again. And I, th- I think that was always very helpful to me having that attitude because let's face it being young inexperienced how do you gain experience making mistakes exactly and and so if we do that we can maximize what we learn from our own mistakes mm-hmm. yeah now um i remember there was a story where you were driving a mining truck <laughs> and um something happened it was yeah. close call Explain that. What what happened there? This is the this is the section of the interview where we get into near death incidents. For sure. Um, yeah. So um, I'll tell you. Um, so I was a mining engineer for my first degree, and I was working half time uh, in industry in order to put myself through school. And what was interesting was when I was at this one mine site, and the, and the mine is now closed. Don't try to look up the mine. Figure out the mine, please. The mine site is closed now. But while I was working at the mine they saw that I was kind of struggling, that they were, it was, they were aware that I was having trouble paying for tuition, paying for rent, paying for all the expenses. And so they gave me the opportunity to spend the weekends driving truck. So they paid me overtime to drive 220 ton mining haul trucks. Now, now, as you're thinking about what these trucks look like, Jason, imagine yourself standing up. Now imagine about two, two and a half times your height and that's the diameter of the wheel. Now imagine driving that thing around. Yeah. You're literally driving a building and you're on the second story on a balcony driving a building. Okay, that's basically, and even when you think about what you can see around yourself, mm-hmm. that's what it's like. Yeah. Okay, so I was driving these trucks on the weekend and I got to tell you, it was incredible experience. It was, it was really, really kind of a neat thing to be in the pit, to see the mine. Like if you're going to be a mining engineer, it's good for you to see operations. Okay, so I really enjoyed that. And it was paying really well. So one day, in the middle of a shift, 
we were, it was, it's known as a contour mine. I should explain that. So basically you're mining up to the, uh, the subcrop. What was it? Sorry, let me see if I got this right. It's been so long since I've, I've talked about this. But basically, yeah, it was a subcrop. It was a coal seam. And you're mining and cutting into the edge of a mountain around the, near the top of a mountain until the point at which the overburden became thick enough that it was sub, it was, would not be economical. To be able to mine that. Okay, so we're mining these coal seams, and they were bituminous grade or, or really good quality grade um, coal. Anyway, so what it meant was that you would load up with coal, and then you would go down a long axis ramp with a steep grade all the way down to the foot of the mountain. Okay, so I get to the crest of the of the um, the ramp where it's about to start going down. Mm-hmm. And I did the right thing. I engaged my dynamic, they were hybrid trucks. I engaged the dynamic brakes to stabilize the speed. I think we we're going down maybe about 12 miles per hour. Like pretty slow, just crawling down this thing. I go to engage the dynamic brake and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Ooh. Like, I mean, there was that push the pedal down. Yeah. And you're like, you can feel it, the braking. You can yeah. feel nothing happened. In fact, there was that moment of terror where nothing happens, and then a lot of things start to happen, where you feel the sheer acceleration of a fully loaded 220-ton truck on steep gradient, freewheeling. And I mean I freewheeled. Like, I, there was nothing I could do. Okay, so I took my arms, and I wrapped them in the steering wheel, yeah. basically like I'm riding a bucking bronco, like or, or bull riding. I basically attached myself to the wheel, and that thing started hitting every bump, every every you know every imperfection in the road, and catching air. Two hundred twenty tons, and I'm starting to come off bumps and That's fly into there. Okay, yeah. halfway down the ramp, there's a ninety degree corner. Okay, and um, what was really interesting was it's blind. I don't know what's on the other side of this corner. And the thing that terrified me, and I realized, was that if there was a service truck. And when I say service truck, I'm talking a 150 ton, like, oh, no, sorry, excuse me, a Ford 150. Okay. So if I'd seen like a Ford 150 in the middle of that ramp, I would have had three choices. One, I could try to turn into the side of the mountain, at which point the box would have been dislocated from the frame and would have come through the cab and killed me. There was no surviving that in a 220 ton haul truck. Okay. I could have gone off the side of the mountain which would have disintegrated the entire frame and the box and everything, and I would have been just caught up in that and killed for sure. Or I could have gone straight through the like a Ford 150. And I've seen what that looks like. You go through a Ford 150 in a 220-ton haul truck, you stamp it flat into the ground. It's just gone. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't encounter any trucks or anything. I went around the 90-degree corner, relieved that there was nothing on the other side. I just kept going down the ramp, but I lost about a third of my load off the side of the mountain. Just kind of came off the side, right? <laughs> and um, I'm still catching air. I'm still going. I went past what they call the run a, run a mine pile, where basically you're supposed to dump. I still couldn't stop. I went past the plant. Couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I went past the engineering office. I couldn't stop. I went almost up to the front gate of the mine. I mean where civilian, regular people are coming in with their cars to do deliveries or the engineers are coming into the office, almost right there. To, the, to an observer, it would have looked like I was trying to steal a load of coal and take it home. 
you know, on the regular highway. That's what it looked like. I was just on my way to drive out of there. So the, the truck came to a stop because the grade had leveled off. The resistance of the dirt, the soft dirt, had basically slowed me down to the point where I could use like small service brakes to get it to a stop. At that point, I secured the park. I came out of the cab and I jumped from that second story onto my knees in the dirt and I kissed the ground. And then I let out a giant, ah, screamed. <laughs> it was completely involuntary. I just let out a big, huge holler. Yeah. Anyway, that's my story about the mining truck. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. um, Another time I was lucky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now to segue into the research area of your life. Um, I know that you started out with mining in your undergrad and it was the engineer that inspired you to go after engineering. Why geostatistics? What led you down a pretty seemingly niche subject of, of research? Yeah. So I was one of the top students in the mining program. I guess I was the top student in my year. And we had just gotten this brand new professor in our department, Clayton Deutsch from Stanford. And uh, Clayton was, I, I think we could argue, He's one of the top people in geostats in the world, and still to this day, a lot of respect to him. And he's also a very unique, a very cool individual. Inspiration. He's very inspirational. And so he, one thing he was very good at was he would identify top students in the undergraduate population that he saw in his courses and he experienced. He'd see them, and he'd invite them to do internships. So my very last internship for, during the undergraduate degree, I did it with Deutsch. And so it was a fantastic experience. It was really cool of him. It was basically come in and do some interesting research. And he brought me into a lot of different topics. I wrote my first two peer-reviewed publications during my undergraduate, um, my final year, which was really, really great. So a lot of that had a great influence on me. Now, the geology was fascinating to me. The mining engineering, it was the outdoorsiness. It was the earth, the massiveness of the system. It was all inspirational to me. The geostatistics was a chance to model it. And it also brought in my like very strong interest in coding, computers. The geostatisticians do that. In, in fact, in fact, the geostats people, they're the ones who are making like really cool algorithms and building really amazing three-dimensional models and exploring uncertainty. And I found that whole thing of trying to model the subsurface to support decision-making, I found it found. I really liked it. I really liked it. And so when Deutsch, after I did that internship, when he said, hey, why don't you stay on and do a master's PhD with me, I, was, I, I went to the dark side. I think if this was Star Wars, I definitely turned to the dark side at that point. But um, I'll tell you one thing, it's, it's turned out really well because that skill set can be used in mining, oil and gas, environmental, forestry, agriculture. Some, my, my, one of my original papers is in agriculture. Like it was so, it's afforded me the opportunity to kind of work in a lot of different topics. And, and so Chevron and oil and gas, now here at UT, I work with a lot of the petroleum engineering students, but I also work with students who are over in... Um, trying to do things in uh, like atmospheric, environmental, and so forth. So it's exciting. We even, we've even done stuff with um, how do we support community development in Texas. Yeah, so I, I, to me, it's been a really fun area to work in. So statistics is giving you a toolkit to kind of dip your hand into a, a lot of different, different fields. It, it's, um, it's giving me a hammer and everything looks like a nail. 
Nice. And it's um, like it's a really good hammer because I'll tell you one thing I would recommend. Finding that type of niche area to work in that has great demand is magical. Because when I was inside of Chevron, I wasn't just Michael Perch, PhD in something. I was a geostatistician. So all over the world, I was a subject matter expert. I'd be called into meetings. I had so many meetings where I'd walk in. The room would be full of engineers and geoscientists, geophysicists. And they'd be like, Dr. Perch is here. We can proceed. Let's figure out this problem. And they'd immediately start presenting the problem to me. And then I'd stand up at the board and I'd be like, that's not a, that's not a Bayesian problem. We can solve it with frequentist methods. And I'd start laying out some type of system to help them. It felt so good. There were so many times that that hammer was so useful. Mm-hmm. There were so many great problems we could solve. So I've never regretted it. Actually, I have 15 graduate students right now, maybe 16 or 17. I lose count. And um, they're all getting degrees very similar to mine, and I'm excited for all of them. I think they're going to have really, really interesting careers. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that because I asked you while we were in Croatia, um, you know, how would I get uh, an oil and gas company or somebody to hire me from overseas? And you said, do something that only you can do. Like throughout the entire world, you are the best at what you specifically do and so i think that ties into what you said exactly well yeah exactly um now is that the motivations that you listed to get you into geostatistics does that keep you in it today or has that changed it's a it's an interesting question like how much do we evolve over time how much do we change our direction i think we're always recreating ourselves i think we always have to be flexible the fascination has not gone away. In fact, if anything, as the deeper I go, the more I learn about this field, the more I see opportunities to do more. And what, what generally happens is this, is there's a couple of things that happen. One thing is that you'll, you'll learn more about problems, and then you realize, hey, we should be doing more of game theory. So you start doing some interesting things or information theory. You know, suddenly you're not doing correlation coefficients. You're doing partial correlation coefficients. You're doing mutual information. You're kind of going down that path. Or you you start thinking about, well, isn't there an interesting way that we can incorporate more physics into that model? And so you start getting to physics and form neural nets or something like that. So at every step, there's been an interesting opportunity to take our big problems and learn new numerical, statistical, probabilistic approaches to improve what we do. So to me, that's kind of kept me excited. Now, I've applied for my first sabbatical. So that may happen. We'll see. We'll see. You may, at the time this is shown, you may know whether or not it happens. But in the fall next year, I should be gone. I should be gone. I've been invited to do a distinguished lecture tour all over Eastern Europe. Hopefully. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go all over Eastern Europe and be like visiting at universities and talking about things. And so what I've been thinking is this is a chance for me to kind of walk away a bit mm-hmm. and really think about a big jump. You know, in reinforcement learning, they talk about the concept of exploration versus exploitation. Are you familiar with that concept? Uh, vaguely. But... If you're trying to optimize a problem, you know, if I, I'll give you an oil and gas example. If you're trying to maximize production, well, if you drill a really good producing well, keep drilling a well that, around that location will get you good production, right? But at what point do you take a big step out and try something new? That's exploration versus exploitation. 
for the last six years, I've been mostly in exploitation mode, trying to do kind of the sure bets, the things that will get funding for my students, trying to kind of make not incremental, but not make big changes in the field. And so I think next fall, while I'm in Europe and I'm traveling, I get away from everything, and I'm working with a lot of people I've never worked with before, I'm going to try to think of new big things is kind of Mm -hmm. my goal. Now, does that mean I'll no longer be a geostatistician? I think I'm always going to be the geostats guy. I don't think that ever goes away. Um, A funny thing about geostats is that what we say is this. If you have a new method and it gets the job done, we're going to call that geostats now. <laughs> We've always done that. And there's been so many different developments along the way, which that's, that's not ground based That's not Krieging. That's not Gaussian simulation. But if it gets the job done, we call it geostats then. So we'll just keep expanding. Nice. So, um, I mean, it seems like you've already answered this a bit, uh, but uh, just to sum it up, in your words, what's the objective of statistics? You know, how would you describe statistics and even like geostatistics and reservoir yeah. modeling to yeah. someone who's not very familiar with it? Yeah. I, I, the way I like to think about it is this. I see statistics as quantification. And I think quantification is powerful. So how does that work? If we have a new way to quantify something complicated, it's like we have a new pair of glasses, a new lens by which we can explore the phenomenon. And so every time I'm thinking about quantification statistics, I'm thinking about how can I come up with a new way to see, and then we'll see new things. That's, that's to me, has always been the focus. And my dream is this. My insidious plan, my, my supervillain plan is this, is we can quantify everything. Like eventually, we'll find ways to quantify all important phenomenon, and with quantification, we'll make better decisions. We'll understand differences, we'll understand relationships, and we'll see and do more. And I think, if anything, deep learning is showing us that we're doing incredible things with complicated deep learning systems that are showing us that we can learn, we can wring more information from data than we ever thought we could before. So I think the role is only going to continue expanding and the world agrees with us look at this we're in the middle of the data science fourth paradigm revolution right now everywhere we go people are asking in engineering in medical whatever field it is what are you doing to address or use new data science technologies so the whole world is excited about this this is this is our age right now (laughs) they would call to action Uh, so when you say like statistics is going to help us make better decisions overall, do you take that kind of statistical way of thinking into your everyday life? Are you making like I, it is a bit it is a bit of a unique question, but I am curious. Like, yeah, yeah. do you think of things in a statistical way, or is it more kind of regardless of the odds, I'm going to do this? One of my PhD students was in my office yesterday, and they were concerned about what happens next summer, internships, full time hires, whatever. And I looked at them and I said the following. What's really surprising is this. I spent all my time thinking about how to build uncertainty models. But I hate uncertainty in my own personal life. I don't know what it is. I'm one of these people. Do you know what I mean? Like if there was a cost function for basically how I deal with uncertainty, you find I'm one of those people who I'll pay a little more to increase, un- to increase certainty. 
I definitely have that kind of, of, is it risk aversion? I'm not sure. But I really don't now. Now, does it, do I use it in my life? Okay. Um, if in, is, in as much as my life is about teaching and sharing with others, it's always from a statistical perspective, right? In as much as I teach and mentor my children, it's always in statistical expectation. So in other words, what I teach my children is this. You can have a bad day. You can, you can, have, you can make a minor mistake. But what really matters in life is the trend. And so I do have that kind of, that scale of looking at things. And it's because I know how much scale matters. And because I know the statistical laws of spatial scale. I know about, uh, you know, REVs and dispersion variants. And I use that in my life. And that's kind of interesting. It allows me to kind of step up and look at things from a bigger scale. I mean, yeah, I I like that. Um, Do you think that, like, you admit you're making better decisions now with that statistical way of thinking than you would, you know, otherwise. Or maybe maybe there's a path where you stayed in mining and you became a mining engineer that oh, was boy. building trucks. And so you didn't get that statistical um, kind of uh, way of thinking that seeped into your decisions over time. So, Jason, now you're getting into, like, how do you validate? Yeah. How do you verify choices you make in life? And this is interesting. I, I quote, I, this is something I say all the time, is there's a parallel universe in which I didn't become a professor, mm-hmm. in which I'm perfectly happy in industry, and I'm probably at stock options now. You know what I mean? I'm probably thinking about, you know, all kinds of great things I can do for retirement and so forth, right? Now, I use that. That's a very useful thing to communicate to my students. Why? Because it shows them how enthusiastic I am for their future. You know, you know what I mean? If I'm a professor and I didn't like industry, I came here because I didn't enjoy my time in industry, where are you undergrads going? Where am I sending you? Am I trying to create a bunch of professors? You're all going off to industry. So I think it's a very good thing for me to be optimistic and excited about this. Now you ask the question about verification and validation. How do I know I made the right choice? And I go back to my original statement. There's a parallel universe in which I'm still in industry, I'm very happy. There's a parallel universe where Michael Perch is a senior mining engineer in Estevan, Saskatchewan. They did offer me a job. At the, basically, a very nice little coal mine there. I don't know if it's still open, though. But anyway, in which I'm living, you know, probably coaching baseball, probably participating in that small town to a, a pretty high level. I'm that type of person. I'd be doing all kinds of cool stuff in a small town. Probably have a little chunk of land out in the country and have peace and quiet and northern lights in the sky at night, you know. There's probably a beautiful... So this is the thing. Let me tell you, if I can tell you one more thing, Jason. I graduated about the same time as somebody else with almost the same degree. I had a unique PhD, but, but similar. That person went to a company went to a company, went to another company, went to another company, went to many companies. I spent 13 years in Chevron, okay? Um, We met and we had lunch. And they told me about everywhere they went, they didn't enjoy. And they'd in fact been at my company for a while. They'd been at Chevron for a while too. So I'd seen them there. And now there were problems and so forth. And I sat there and I just said, I enjoyed everything. I had a great career. And, And what I realized is some of it's attitude, some of its flexibility. In many ways, we create our own reality. So what reality do we want to create? 
And what's interesting is uh, Victor Franco is right. Like as a man, think of so shall he be. Mm-hmm. It's totally true that that reality you create and live in, it actually does attract good things to happen. You know, and so, so what do I say when it comes to all of those big questions about choices? I think I'm the person I'd be happy in so many different cases, as long as I was accomplish accomplishing what I know I can accomplish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I maybe I needed the PhD. Yeah. I think I'm that type of person. I kind of needed that. I I needed that kind of level of challenge. When I worked in Chevron, I got to tell you, there were many many days where I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to answer. The technical questions were that hard that I had to go and sit there and focus and really exert myself to get past them, get through them. That's that's good. That's a good life. That's a very good life to live. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, that's really crazy because when I was in high school trying to figure out, and even like right now, just trying to figure out what exactly I want to do, what career path I want to go down in, I came to that exact conclusion that you did where I can be happy doing a lot of things as long as, you know, the basic requirements are met and I'm trying to be the best version of that that I can. So, yeah, I I love that. That's great. Um, Now, you mentioned that we're in this fourth paradigm of data science. Um, Is that AI driven? Are you referring to AI there? Yeah. The fourth paradigm is this idea. The first paradigm is empiricism. That's where you run experiments. We've been doing that. You know, you can dig up bones in Egypt and see holes in skulls. They were doing medical experiments. I'm glad it wasn't part of those experiments, right? Uh, and the second paradigm is generally considered to be when we were starting to discover natural laws, fit the equations, learn the relationships. Third paradigm, well, systems are complicated. Geometries are complicated. Coupled systems, you can't just use analytical expressions of the fundamental physics. You have to put in a computer and run the model and watch it. That's simulation-based, computational simulation-based. Fourth paradigm is the idea that we put, we now have access to massive amounts of data. We have new algorithms that are very powerful. We have new hardware that supports those algorithms efficiently. And we start trying to learn structures directly from the data. Okay, and, and these systems are flexible enough to learn complicated things. Okay, so the fourth paradigm is that. Now, How's this impacting society? How's this going? How's this going to look in the future? Do you want me to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna. <laughs> so when I stood up, I was um, I was on a panel at an industrial engineering conference in Atlanta, Georgia, just a while ago, and they invited me because they know I do all this stuff, and it was really cool because I got to stand up in front of industrial engineers. Do you know industrial engineers? Do you know what they do? I have a. Uh, I had a friend that was going to major in industrial engineering, but I've never met an actual industrial engineer. They're really cool people. They're kind of, to me, they kind of seem to be that jack of all trades. The engineer who can kind of go into a very complicated process, you know, and and try to figure out how to optimize it, make it safer, make it safer, make it faster, find all kinds of fixes for things. They're very cool. They do a lot of cool stuff. They got a lot of interesting data, too. And so they said, come in here and tell us about what you've seen. And I got to stand up in front of the industrial engineers and say, listen, my engineering brothers and sisters, I come to you from the subsurface engineering field and the geosciences. And I tell you this, we're further along on the AI data science fourth paradigm path. We've been doing it longer than you have. You're, you're looking at it and wondering, but we've been doing it for, I think we can argue, 50, 60 years. 
kind of this data-driven approach, right? And I said, guess what? I have good news for you. It's going to be great. And that's what I said. That's what I said. And it's very interesting because they all kind of looked at me funny. They thought I was kind of joking. And then I started to go through and walk through it. I started to say, in general, I summarize it as this. Engineers have more time to do engineering. That's really what happened. A lot of, a lot of kind of mundane things are automated. Now we have a chance to do more engineering. Okay, so can, can I go to another panel? I was on another panel just a couple of weeks ago. Can yeah. I talk about that? No, yeah, for sure. I was on a panel, and we had um, a couple of professors there with me, an academic panel talking to a group of people in our energy about what's happening with AI in the future. And um, one of the professors, I'm not going to say where they're from, said AI is destroying the university, like uh, ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. They said ChatGPT is wiping out the university. We're, we're goners. It's, it's a big problem. now. And um, the Stanford professor, he had some really good perspectives, kind of a balanced perspective. And I got up and I said, I'm not worried at all. I'm not worried at all. Because I said, I, I run ChatGPT. I, just like everybody does. I code a lot. So I get ChatGPT out. And um, I had to solve a problem. And I tried to look for a way I could do this problem. And I found on Stack Overflow three different answers, which were all the same thing. And all of these answers were basically known ways to do it. But I wanted to do something novel. I had this novel idea. Nobody had done it. Stack Overflow didn't have it. Nobody had done it. I go to ChatGPT and I pose the question three times, really carefully. ChatGPT, what answer do you think it gave me? The answer, uh, I've always found it like a nice answer, but not the right answer. Yeah, it was the answer from Stack Overflow, reworded a little bit differently. But basically, the same answer, and every time it just kept coming back to that. It was unable to innovate. It was unable to do something new. Okay, so here's something really interesting, is that um, what I said after I shared that story, as I said, I don't teach engineers low-level basic coding. That's not my, that's not, if I think about the gift I give you, like, you know what I mean? Like that part of me that I give to this class, to these students around me, to help you do better in life, that's not what I give you. What I give you is a way of thinking that's creative and innovative, a different way to think about data, a different way to see the world around you, and ChatGPT can't do that. And so I, that's why I said, I said, ChatGPT and these methods aren't going to replace me. It's not going to replace knowledge with the students that can't teach what I teach. And it's not going to replace you in the workplace. And so that's what, so I feel, I actually do feel just optimistic about the whole thing, but I'll tell you what it will do. It's the ultimate assist if you're trying to do coding. Because, you know, you want to do low-level basic things. It'll give you a great first draft. You'll have to make some improvements, some fixes. It'll definitely help you. It's it's really is advanced when it comes to trying to assist with coding, yeah. Yeah. So um, you kind of went over what AI and you know ChatGPT and all these things don't do so well, which is create completely new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like they're really good at working with what they already have. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna flip that and ask you what. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned coding, but. What else is AI really good at yeah, and what can we use yeah, it for? Yeah. One of the really cool things about AI, machine learning, deep learning, is that fundamentally what we're finding out, the way they work really well, is when you take a problem that's very big and complicated 
you find a way to project it into a lower dimensional space we call latent feature space. And, and many of the methods we use do this. Uh, the generative adversarial networks, autoencoders, they're all doing that. Okay. Then what they do is they take that, that lower dimensional space, they do the problem there, and then they project it back to the original space. And when you say lower dimensional space, mm-hmm. do you mean less parameters to work yeah, with? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. In fact, Jason, your intuition serves you well. It is exactly that. That if you imagine if I took an entire model that could be millions of cells with, with uh, features, multiple features. So you have millions and millions of values, numerical values. You can project it to a space, and we've done this, a vector of 100 random values. Okay, then what we can do is we can model work in that space and project it back to the original space. Okay, so what's this allow us to do? This projection allows us to remove noise. This projection allows us to summarize complicated systems in a way we never thought we could. This, this, this projection allows us to solve problems in a way that's consistent with each other. Like in other words, we can integrate information sources in a way now that we don't wreck the model. Like we've been doing that for a long time. Where, let me give you an example. We integrate the geology into a subsurface model, and then we try to honor uh, production data. Well, we've done lots to wreck the geology while trying to honor the engineering information. You see what I'm saying? But when we work in that latent feature space, we have a subset of the problem now encapsulated that's always geologic. And so now when we incorporate other information, we don't invalidate that. That's, to me, that's fascinating. Uh, we can, we can, and also if you project, you can visualize your problem, which is we can never do before. We can start to visualize and see how the problem's behaving. And so a lot of my students are working on new ways that we kind of work in these lower dimensional spaces. I think that's, I think that's really exciting. The second thing, the second thing that's really good, speed. Speed. Uh, we built a model Um, imagine a two centimeter by two centimeter by two centimeter cube of rock. Mm -hmm. And so you got the pore structure and the grains, right? Um, We were trying to predict at micrometer resolution, the velocity field. If you put a pressure difference across it and boundary conditions, you flow through it, right? And um, we were doing uh, not as, what was it? What was the methodology? I forgot. For for anyone that doesn't know what pores are, it's little spaces in the rock itself where fluids can flow or spaces between very small um, either crystal or rock grains yeah. just yeah. okay keep going and and so we were running a full simulation the simulation to get that velocity field was based on this idea of just having lots of particles and let the particles flow through the pore space at a high resolution large Boltzmann, I think. And the methodology we ran was we were having to use the supercomputer over attack here at UT Austin. And it was taking us two days to get one solution. Okay, so we took that model and we taught it to deep learning. We taught, okay, we said, okay, this is what the sample looks like. This is the model of the sample. This is how the numerical simulations predicting velocity at micrometer. Can you do it too? And what we found is we had to actually do what we call feature engineering. We took aspects of the rock and we encoded it into brand new features to teach the machine about tortuosity. You know, zero slip uh, surfaces, basically how you have zero velocity at the grain surfaces. We had to encode that into. And when we did that, it started to predict at micrometers at about maximum error of 14% relative error, okay, which is w- way more than you need. 
Because, yeah. you, you know, at yeah. the scale we're working at, we just need to have a good guess, right? And it can make those predictions in a ten-thousandth of a second. Wow. Okay, so now what are we talking about? The next step is we start to model larger and larger scales, but using that small-scale information, we get to a point where we actually, the dream is you could actually look at individual grains and pores, the spaces in the rock. You could try things like put cementation, mineralization in the grains, and you'd be able to turn a dial and instantaneously see how that would affect water, oil, gas, whatever flow going through that rock at scales of like hundreds of meters, thousands of meters, like kilometers. And now we're talking about instantaneous feedback on how rock fabric texture affects all kinds of things in the world, like water, yeah. oil, and gas. So we're excited about that. We're really excited about these. Really, I want I want subsurface modeling to be like when I do TurboTax. Do you use TurboTax, Jason? Are you at the point where you're worrying about taxes? Uh, la, in a couple months. Okay, in a couple okay. Months, you're yeah. still a student or yeah. whatever. Okay, okay. And sorry, I shouldn't maybe ask you that. But, but when you do TurboTax for everybody online who's watching this, you know exactly what happens. You're putting in your information, you get in the top right corner an immediate estimated return. And then every time you answer a question, guess what happens? The money goes down. I don't know why. For me, it always goes down. I lose money every time I answer. But you get immediate feedback on as you give information, how does it affect the outcome? I want the subsurface to be like that, that we give a, we make a change at very whatever scale and instantaneously you find out what would happen to the flow simulation yeah. to you know whatever type of engineering that you're interested in. Um, Lou's taking a picture by the way for the, yeah, for yeah, the yeah, Instagram yeah. and Twitter and, yeah oh you're uh, on Twitter yeah yeah okay or, good, I good. guess X now as they call it okay okay I'm also on there yeah and yeah. I share um, I, I use it to share promote the educational content i put it out there okay i'll when you put it out let me know i'll retweet it yeah for sure yeah at, at geostats guy for anyone that's Yay. interested in purchase twitter thanks for the plug yeah. thanks for the shout out i mean i, I probably it. need the plug more than you right yeah. now but, yeah. um i mean yeah that's that sounds the ai sounds very revolutionary in that regard and i almost imagine it doing that same thing in other com- like super complicated systems that we have yet to got get a really solid grasp on you know like the the brain the immune system the body and then you know the atmosphere things like that and um it kind of reminds me of this quote you have where it says energy has been big data before tech learned about big data and it it just seems like from what you've been explaining energy is developing all of these big data methods that are a step ahead of what everyone else is doing why is that you know why is energy so ahead well well, and 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 i'll just be careful there when it when it comes to technology in ai i don't want to say anything negative about um, what tech's doing like they have been developing great algorithms and methodologies and so forth so i'm not suggesting that you know we in the energy field have better algorithms you know per se but what i think is this is i think that we have been dealing with these struggling with these challenges for a long time and what are the challenges what well okay so necessity is the mother of invention that's what it comes down to okay so what's the necessity for us okay so we have to make for decades 
big decisions. What's it cost to punch a hole in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico to go kilometers past the mud line down to the reservoir? Uh, I visit many companies and they tell me a single well, $150 million, pretty typical. Um, it wasn't a long time ago. If you're doing production tests, it could be like 200 and something, depending on complexity. Okay, what if you get that wrong? That's not, that's not Spotify recommender engine picking which song I listen to next. That's a $150 million mistake at work, okay? Now, what kind of data do you have to work with? Now, once again, let, let me compare it to the recommender engine. In that case, you know, when you're sitting here, Jason, listening to Spotify, you know, you're doing some work. They have perfect information on you. They see everything you do. In fact, the whole thing is a little creepy. You know what I mean? Like you, I don't know about you, but I've looked for things on Google search and then I go to Amazon and they're advertising that product to me. You know what I mean? The whole thing is connected up somehow, right? Okay, so they have all the information. They can fingerprint you. In fact, there was a thing from Google. Did you know they were figuring out when people were getting cancer before they knew? No, I didn't Did you know hear that. about that? That's that was crazy. fascinating. Because what was happening was that um, people would do a search. Yeah. I'm having this type of pain. Then they do a search. I'm having this type of other symptom. And then they do another search. Oh, I'm having, this is getting worse. And the Google engineers start to ask, should we be doing something to notify them? Because we've seen so much of this and we have such good data on everybody. We can start to kind of see the path. And, And then they said, well, maybe we don't do something explicitly. Maybe we just start sending ads their way for a certain type of diagnostic testing. That kind of thing. And I think at the end they decided they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. But anyway, so they have perfect information on you. It's creepy or eerie or, you know, that's almost some black mirror stuff for you, If I get any type of cancer ad, I'm going to be a little creeped out for a couple yeah, days yeah yeah wonder what's going on yeah. there no no but please don't i don't want to cause anyone to be hypochondriac but but i'll tell you what what's interesting is that um we never had that we never had that type of data do you know volumetrically what proportion of the subsurface we sample directly oh man i i remember <laughs> learning this it's really small it, yeah. it's not a thousandth it's yeah. not a millionth it's not even a billionth it's one trillionth of the subsurface we sample and get to look at directly. Sheesh. Okay, now we got to make $150 million decisions. Okay, and this is the same. Mining, oil and gas, whatever the subsurface was, we face that. Okay, there's no fundamental physics model. There's no we see every click you make. There's no we can model this thing with such, you know, treat it as homogeneous and apply, you know, the first and second, you know, principles, Newton's, you know, force on it or something, momentum. We can't, no, we can't. We have to, in fact, use data-driven methods to make predictions. Yeah. We always had. So necessity is the mother of invention. We had expensive decisions. We had difficult data to work with. And we had often a lot of data, but not very dense. Yeah. And we didn't have, we couldn't rely just on fundamental engineering, physics, and geoscience. So yeah. we've had to do this. We always needed to do the data-driven approach. Gotcha. That's why. Which is good. Mm-hmm. It's good. It made us stronger. Yeah. It didn't kill us. It just made us stronger, right? Pressure makes diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've been talking about AI and machine learning for a little bit. And, I mean, just for anyone listening that, doesn't have a solid grasp of AI or doesn't teach it to uh, undergrad and grad students. Um, How would you explain the concepts of AI 
and machine learning to the average person? And then what is the difference between AI, machine learning, and deep learning? Yeah, yeah. And so um, we were in a faculty meeting, and one of our professors who also works with data, uh, Dr. John Foster, he showed an answer. Somebody's talking on and on about AI and machine learning. And he said, every time you hear that, just think glorified linear regression. In fact, when I teach machine learning, I often introduce a simple linear regression model, and then I challenge the students saying, prove to me this is not machine learning. Truth of the matter is, it is parametric machine learning. That is a parametric predictive model. Okay, so that's machine learning. So the first thing is you can go to Wikipedia. You look at machine learning, it's going to tell you it's a group of algorithms. It's a toolkit, many, many different algorithms okay, that learn from training data to make predictions for a problem for which it wasn't explicitly designed to solve. So they're general. They can work on many, many, many different systems. Mm -hmm. That's the basic definition. That's the one everybody uses on their slides. Okay, now, if you read to the end of the article, there's a message. And the message says, where you do not have sufficient information to explicitly program the system. It basically tells you that if you use it where you don't have the engineering physics, the data sample that's sufficient, the sampling at sufficient resolution to just run the forward model. If you can use the third paradigm, use the third paradigm. In fact, that's, that's what I advocate for. Don't jump to machine learning instead of using your engineering knowledge. In fact, to be honest, my, my one fear is it becomes lazy. We become lazy. We just like let the machine sort it out, and we kind of back away from our knowledge. No, we need to. The domain expertise is the most important part of being a data scientist. Okay. Now, what's the difference between AI and machine learning? Well, let's step. Machine learning, glorified linear regression, all the way up to deep learning. So linear, linear regression um, is like, uh, I think of it as I'm in my high school biology class yep. and we have a few data points and we put them in the calculator and then it, the calculator makes a line of best fit. You know, you have the R squared. That is that. That's exactly what I mean. Okay, cool. That's yeah. machine learning right there. Gotcha. So isn't that great? Your, yeah. your um, biology teacher taught you some machine learning back in high school. That's very good. Now, machine learning goes everything from linear regression up to more complicated systems. And we could talk about a lot of really interesting complicated systems. We could talk about support vector machines, which learn by solving it as a linear system, like a plane to do classification, cut your data with a plane. But because your data isn't linear, it projects it to a high dimensional space, fits a linear model. And then when it comes back to the original space, it's nonlinear because it's distorted. Isn't that cool? Now, what's amazing about these support vector machines, you can project to infinite dimensional space and solve the problem because the kernel trick says you never have to go to the space. You just have to be able to say there's this space and quantify the dissimilarity of your samples in that space. You don't actually have to map in that space. Mm -hmm. And there's a model by which you can do that. You can solve an infinite, infinite dimensional space. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So all of that is machine learning. What is AI? Okay, let's step. Uh, if you take an artificial neural net and you put more than one hidden layer, they call it deep learning. So you go from machine learning to deep learning just by adding one row of neurons. 
Okay, so that's not hard to do. In fact, if you're doing artificial neural nets, you're deep learning because nobody ever does it with one hidden layer. You're going to do a bunch of layers or convolution layers. So when you say row of neurons, yes. it's this kind of steps in a decision-making process. That that's a good way. A good way to describe it. Okay. Um, a artificial neural net will have rows of neurons. Yeah. In which information is passed from one end to the other. You're mapping from inputs to outputs. And so how many layers will dictate how complicated and how many parameters in the model? Gotcha. You can easily build an artificial neural net that has tens of thousands of parameters. In fact, one of my students went to Los Alamos National Laboratory and they built a deep learning model and the challenge was bringing the model back home because it couldn't be emailed. It couldn't fit on a uh, regular zip drive or what, a USB thumb drive. They had to take a portable hard drive because that model was that many parameters. Yeah. That's okay, okay, now let's go, okay, we're deep learning now. What's artificial intelligence? Well, one of the, um, actually Dr. John Foster, the professor I work with, he said, artificial intelligence is only used on PowerPoint. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not untrue. Uh, the general definition of artificial intelligence is uh, an algorithm that can do a task that usually a human does. Okay. Okay, well, that's very general. Okay, linear regression, machine learning, learning from data and so forth, that, that's a basic building block for kind of many, many important things we can do. And so many of these systems, I, I have a problem kind of differentiating deep learning to artificial intelligence, but um, the popular Turing test is an example of that. ChatGPT definitely exceeds that now. Uh, spend some time with ChatGPT, and you could start to convince yourself there must be somebody on the other side of them typing to you you know it really is amazing to the degree to which they're but that's what's considered self-driving cars mm -hmm. you know things that can write your nobody here is doing that write your assignments or your essays for you <laughs> but that's artificial intelligence nobody's doing that though no not at all that's nice yeah. that yeah. <laughs> that's it you know can i i want to say one more thing about that if i can though artificial no, yeah, intelligence yeah, and chat gpt uh, we have a vice provost here, uh, Art Markman. He wrote an article, a blog post. It was really, really nice. He was talking about ChatGPT. And he was talking about the fact that ChatGPT has great competence, but no comprehension. It's competent, but it can't comprehend. You see that? And so what he said, which fascinated me, he kind of flipped it around, but he said, he said, how many of us at work are operating like chat GPT with competence but no comprehension and he said and he kind of basically what he alluded to was that we could actually start looking at ourselves like instead of being all fearful chat GPT is going to replace us are we operating like chat GPT in which case you could be replaced or are we operating with a high degree of comprehension as we work and I thought, I thought that was really interesting, how he kind of drew those lines and said it's just unable to comprehend what it's doing. Yeah, I, I almost think of AI and the way that I've used ChatGPT and, and things like that as a way to, you know, help me code or revise a, an abstract that I'm trying to write. It's very like um, I try to be the one creating the ideas and then ChatGPT is that competency factor, you know, that added... 1.2% or yeah 20% yep. to what yep. I'm doing yep. do you think that's an accurate um, 
picture for how AI is going to implement itself yep. in yep. the workplace. And I think I think you, as a student engineer, have the right attitude. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? As much as you can be right, but but that attitude of seeing yourself as an engineer, seeing yourself as part of that puzzle, being the comprehension, that that knowledge, that that creativity is definitely, and recognizing that, that, that's what keeps you employed. That's what makes you an augmented engineer in the modern fourth paradigm world. And I think that's where we have to land. Because I'll tell you what, when I was coding in Fortran, I would have to do a fundamental engineering geoscience task. I would code it up from scratch. I'd spend, what, minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes coding that up the first time, right? And then, um, but didn't somebody else in the world do that before me? Wasn't that available somewhere? You, you see what I'm saying? Like, what a waste of time that is. When I got into open source development, now I started to, like, I had to solve a problem, and I downloaded AstroPy to solve it. It's an astronomy package to solve a subsurface modeling. It was sparse data convolution problem. Okay, so now we're using leveraging the world's brilliance. To me, ChatGPT, chatbots, transformers, all these technologies are the next step in this evolution of shared knowledge. Science is a social activity. It makes perfect sense for us to be all sharing this knowledge and building off. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, let's stand on the shoulder of giants. Let's yeah. not let's not recreate the wheels anymore. That's what it's telling me. Gotcha. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely, um, I've heard people, I mean, the more we integrate AI into our daily lives and our decision making and the work that we put out I feel like the more anxiety there is of like you know Skynet takeover you know just like um, maybe not that extreme but definitely like a um, I I remember talking to um, an old friend of mine and he was talking about you know AI generated art and music and it's like um, sure you know, estimating porosity or or modeling fluid flow through a medium seems very useful objectively. But what about like art and music and these things created by AI? What do you think about that? Yeah, this is so. This is a good question because what I said we can we can kind of we can place it ourselves. We can feel comfortable by saying we have comprehension. The AI and and the AI has only competency. And we have creativity, and AI doesn't have that, right? And then you start looking at these other fields. And this is exactly what that professor who was on the panel was worried about. Because remember, I'm at University of Texas at Austin. We're at one of the top engineering schools in the country, right? Um, he was from a liberal arts college that happened to have some subsurface geology in it, right? And so the essays, the art, all this stuff is what they do. And this is what they're seeing impacted. We're sitting at a meeting. We plan a hackathon every year. Hope you'll join in for the hackathon in January. You're very yeah, much welcome. Sure. Yeah. You're welcome. And um, Dr. Foster, who's co-hosting the hackathon, they said, well, we should, uh, we should design shirts. Somebody in the meeting said, why don't we design shirts? And Dr. Foster, while no one was looking, went to the most modern chat GPT where it's kind of linked into art. I don't know exactly how he was doing it, what the exact uh, API was for it, but he was accessing it. And he had it design a hackathon shirt for a petroleum engineering group, 
given the year, given the name of the hackathon, and it made something. It made four different things, and they were really great. It looked really cool. And then he said, well, that's too busy. Let's make something that, you know, when you get a T-shirt, you don't want the T-shirt just solid print. It feels stiff. It feels weird, right? I have shirts like that. So he said, make it more minimalist. And it came back with like something you'd have kind of a crest up here, you know, kind of thing. It was really good. Okay, so let's let's think that through. What does that mean? And so let's ask ourselves, is it truly creating new things? And who owns that? Because I knew before, I knew before if I draw a picture right now and I show it to you, I own that picture. If I write words right now, I own those words, right? It's impl- implicit copyright, right? What does it mean when we have something like that? And, and it's really hard for me not to look at that and just remember my experience with deep learning. And my experience with deep learning is this. It doesn't extrapolate. It doesn't extrapolate. It do- doesn't extract. If it does, there's an explicit model of how it extrapolates. So it's not really extrapolating. It's not going beyond what you taught it. You taught it what to do at the data locations through the data, and you taught it what to do away from the data by assumptions you made implicitly in the model. So I look at the art, and while it may be really compelling, I start seeing the matrix, like Neo from the matrix. You know what I mean? And I, st- and I remember this. I, I know what a transformer is. I know what convolution, deconvolution is. And I know what these systems do kind of fundamentally can all be boiled down to basically conditional probabilities. Frequencies, things that are seen and then making choices based on that in a loss function. And given all of that, I, I just have to, I have to, I feel that these systems are getting more and more complicated, but they're still not creative. They're grabbing elements from things. They're morphing things together. There's assumptions of stationarity and assumptions of what was the training data that went into it and so forth. And so I don't really feel like when we think about the great artist, mm-hmm. those are ones who innovated in their art, right? Yeah. I don't think I don't think these methods ever do that. That's what I feel right now. There's an illusion of creativity. There's an illusion of creativity. Just like ChatGPT is an illusion of communication. Yeah. That's why that the lawyer who I heard about that, who basically tried to submit a brief or something like that. Some, some, I don't know what the words are. I'm not a lawyer. But basically using ChatGPT, it was made up case law. There were numbers and names or whatever, and none of it was true. And what is it? I work in geostats. We build simulated realizations that have local or locally inaccurate but globally accurate. They have the right behavior. In fact, I use the example of a dill, pick, pot- dill pickle potato chip. I have a bag uh, that I put in my slides in which it says simulated flavor because it's from Canada. They say simulated flavor. And I say, do you believe any dill pickles are harmed in the making of this product? Like there's a big factory with trucks dumping dill pickles in, and what comes out the other side is chips. And the truth is no, because it's not dill pickle. It's simulated. It's fake. And just as much as that chat GPT, what it's telling you is made up. It's simulated. And the same thing with the art. The art is... When I take geostats, I put in statistics. I tell it all kinds of things about the stationarity or trends or behaviors, and it makes things that look like that. We've just gone a step further. We made things that look more realistic than we used to, but it's still just simulating making that fake thing. I mean, yeah, I that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Oh man, it was on the tip of my tongue. Oh, that sucks. I just lost it. That's a good thing about editing this afterwards. Yeah, for sure. You can totally remember this. How do you how do you mark it? How do you what if you would do it would just make it like a beep, you know, something like that. And then you when you're looking at the sound, you'll see this like little uniform spike. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, that's the part I'm supposed to cut out. You just added your own little beep Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. You might keep that now. You might keep that. This is the part where a little sound yeah, bite yeah this is where I say I'm Michael Perch and I help fake the moon landings. Yeah. You, you now have it. You have it now. <laughs> I wasn't born yet. I wasn't for the record, I wasn't born yet though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just got it back. Okay, good. We so, knew. So um I have been thinking as we're talking, you know, if you're using a deep learning algorithm or um some kind of um machine learning to help you with you know say your research like is ai like advanced enough ai do you cite that like do you put them on the citations yeah. and do they yeah. do you accredit this you know whatever model to the work because it did have some kind of intellectual yeah. con- contribution yeah. um or at least if it isn't coming up with things yeah. then it's taking um, things that it has, it's taking ideas that it's gotten from countless researchers who've worked on yeah. it before, right? So how do you credit things to uh, large models like that? So this is where I give a caveat that I'm not a lawyer. So anything I say here, don't consider it legal advice for anyone. But this is what I know. Let's go back to my example where I was trying to do something novel with coding. I found three different good examples of something already done that was maybe like the 70% solution. Okay. Then I went to ChatGPT and I got basically a solution from ChatGPT that to be honest, I could tell it came from those three sources, right? Like it really did. It, it had some exact reproduction. It had phrases that had been borrowed. Okay. And so the nice thing is, is this, is when I go to Stack Overflow and I saw this contribution, I can take their code and build on it and then I'll cite their code and I'll cite those individuals thing I feel a little weird about with ChatGPT is, and as a person who's put, I know they use GitHub and I know I've put hundreds of well-documented workflows on GitHub. So if people access my content, they'll probably cite me. And for me, my only concern is that results in more traffic, more interest, more funding for students, support for research, that kind of thing, right? But I, I do get a little bit worried that that'll disappear. That'll just become this machine came up with it and, and so I don't think we as a society have worked out exactly what IP means in this, um, in this chatbot world. I think we have to ask some big questions about that. Yeah. Would you have any recommendations for anyone making decisions on uh, well, that subject? Well, this, this is the thing. is um, The book Technopoly um, really impressed me when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, Technopoly, I forgot his postman, I think, wrote it. And um, that book talked about the fact that writing, it suggested, and there was a parable about writing, I think it came from Greek time, that said that writing will be uh, basically a bad invention. That writing will cause people to lose memory. Writing will cause people to uh, have bookshelves full of books and pretend, have pretense of knowledge and expertise, but not actually have it. That it won't be in their minds, it'll be just, oh yeah, look at this book. And so uh, people said the same thing about kind of similar things to Google search. The Google search causes us to further erode our memory 
you know, now we don't use our facility, uh, our faculties. We're now using just, um, you know, you Google search everything. Nothing's at recall. And so we, we lack a lot of knowledge that way. And so the question is, ChatGPT a further step down that path? And um, I, I worry about that too. I worry that they'll create kind of more pretense. People who just kind of like um, feign knowledge. You know what I mean? Uh, people who won't, I think that example with the lawyers was a good example from the standpoint they didn't check the answer. Now, how many people, because we say that right now, we say, oh, use ChatGPT to get the first draft of the code and then go check the answer. And you have to know how to code in Python because you need to fix ChatGPT. That's what we tell students, right? But um, how long does that last? You know, and then and then there, and then there's another thought, and it goes like this: Clayton Deutsch, uh, he, he gave a really good lecture one time, and he talked about black box modeling. And it's really interesting because every time you say black box modeling in our field, does that sound like a good thing? Sounds pretty ominous to me. It sounds bad. It yeah. sounds like um, it sounds like practicing something you don't understand. It sounds like you're um, being negligent. Yeah, professionally, professional engineer speak here. That that's not competent practice, right? And I'm professional engineer. So so now what he did was he pulled out his cell phone and he asked everyone, he's like, who knows how this works? Like cellular tower, cellular communication. What was the major technology breakthrough that we could actually all start working on these systems together? And he said, Nobody in the room could recreate this. If we reset society technologically, no one could build this, right? But he said it works. And it works as a black box. And so we asked the question, should we be seeking technology development in our research to the point where things can operate as a black box, where people can find huge value in what we do without fully understanding or really understanding how they work? And so then, man, at this point, I've gone all the way to now I have Star Trek in my head. Like imagine that kind of technology where you're post-need type civilization where technology, at that point... Are they sitting there worried about credit and, you know what I mean? You don't hear anyone in Star Trek getting all obsessed with, oh, he wrote the, they wrote the code, she wrote the code, they did that. They're just in this kind of like, let's explore the universe and understand things. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and so they've moved on to like now bigger ideas and a lot of other things the machines just take care of, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, maybe if I'm worried about it at all, I'm being short-sighted. Because maybe I re- should realize that this is the next step in evolution of how we discover, how we learn, how we share. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like knowledge is being slowly accumulated into this amalgamation of ideas that, I mean, Shared with everybody. who can take credit for that? Yeah. The human race, maybe. You yeah. Know, just, is that's a, is yeah. that's a beautiful idea, that right? That is really cool, yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is something we should all, like, everyone grab a shovel. Let's start, let's start making this thing, mm-hmm. you know? Like maybe that's exciting. That it doesn't run. Yeah, it's like, who do we accredit to the Pyramid of Giza? Who do we accredit Stonehenge to? Who do we accredit the Colosseum? You know, it's yeah. And and uh, when I was in Croatia and study abroad, we were there. Yeah. We saw was that Pula, the Colosseum there on the coast. Yeah. That took it take eighty years to build. Something like what that. was the life expectancy back then? Yeah. You know what I mean. Like how many generations passed away while that darn thing was being built? Mm-hmm. You know, like who? Maybe, maybe, maybe that would be a great thing for us. 
if we really saw ourselves building something great, because I got to tell you, for a period of time, you know what it was, right? Taming the wild, bringing light to the darkness, curing major diseases that afflicted us, you know, like, and, and inoculations that, that just smallpox and so forth. Like, like, we had all these great things we did. Maybe this is our next great step as a civilization. Yeah, kind of cool. It is, it is inspirational. It really is exciting. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Now, um, not to keep bombarding you with the <laughs> controversial topics, but I would like to talk about climate change. Um, not in like a, you know, gotcha kind of sense, but I mean, I, I think it's pretty widely accepted that the Earth's climate is changing yeah. due to human activity. Yeah. However, you know, the severity to the change or the severity of the change itself and our approach to mitigating it is just so controversial. And I really don't want to make this discussion about, you know, the facts and fallacies of climate change. But I do think that you have a really valuable perspective on the whole problem because rarely do we talk to people who are actually from or in the industry about the problem itself. I feel like we vilify the industry a lot without getting its actual perspective. Yeah, just segueing into the first question here. What is the industry's approach to the climate change issue? Yeah. You know? So, um, Jason, that's a fair question. All these questions are fair. Yeah. And um, I'm a, I am a professor in the Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering. So I don't get to dodge this question. Yeah. I don't have a right to. And I had 13 years. I put my kids through college. I saved up and my kids are going through college because of energy. So I, I, and it's in my blood. My, um, my uncle drilled Leduc number two and three in the Western Canadian uh, sedimentary basin, like major kind of discovery areas. So, so I, I, I need to answer this question. The first thing I'll, let me just say in general is this, is that we in petroleum, mining, all of these kind of resource type of industries, we tend to love the outdoors. We tend to be those outdoorsy people who love spending time in the outdoors, not in artificial environments. We tend to be the type of people who really appreciate the geology, the, the beauty around us, the national parks and so forth. So it's part of our culture. And so if anyone thinks that, okay, so inside of an energy company, like there's kind of a you know, sinister kind of feeling of hate towards the environment or something, I, I've never, never, ever seen that. I've never, ever seen that. There's an appreciation and they, they adore you know, the environment. Um, the other thing is this, is that I also recognize the fact that, and, and I had this opportunity. I sat at the table with John Watson, the CEO of Chevron, because I was mm-hmm. part of this high potential employee program. And I got to ask him how he saw our role in society. And he talked so passionately about the role of Chevron as a company, lifting societies, bringing energy and how it's improved life standards. Like uh, literally eased human suffering around the world. Like energy, the energy sources we've had up until now, which 80 something percent is, you know, oil and gas and coal, have raised billions of people out of poverty. And I lived in squatter camps of Tanzania. I've seen what energy poverty looks like. And it is dying of dysentery. It is living a life of like, that's very difficult for us to comprehend here. Okay, so... I have a lot of passion and feelings around like how energy in general has helped people. The other thing I'll say is this, is me personally, this is one thing I think is important, is that I 
recognize um, as a geoscientist too, the fragility of our earth system. It's massive, it's beautiful, it's amazing, but we live in a very thin veneer of habitability right on the edge of this planet in a hostile solar system and universe that's trying to kill us. Like it is, there is no other place we know of that we can move, breathe, live over the long term. In fact, we don't even know if we can survive for a long time on the moon or Mars because of microgravity. Like even Martian gravity, we don't know right now if that's sufficient gravity to prevent us from having long-term issues that will kill us. So this is this thin veneer, this thin atmosphere that we live in all around us is all we have. And we cling to it like a bridgehead of technological civilization in this universe that's trying to kill us. And what do we know? We know we're changing it. We know we're changing it. We know because they can track and they can see exactly these molecules of carbon dioxide. They know if they're coming from what source. And so they can figure out, they know that it's caused by industrial activities and combustion, right? Okay. So now what, what are we doing? We're operating an experiment where we're changing that thing without 100% understanding the result of the experiment. Yeah. That's, that's scary. That's a major issue, right? And so what, what do we have? We have this really amazing kind of contrast going on here. We've got energy, that a source that has brought an amazing life to billions of people. And it seems essential. It really is essential to our modern civilization. And then we've got these changes that we're facing as far as like our atmosphere and climate and so forth. And so I do subscribe to, and I think what we're finding is that a lot of companies are recognizing the fact that we can't just turn off the tap. But then they see themselves as being part of the solution. And so what is it? A lot of the problems and their solutions are in the subsurface. We need to be subsurface engineers. We need to be working towards those solutions. Is it sequestration? I don't know if that ends up being like, you know, the silver bullet. That solves many of these problems. Is it new energy sources? Maybe. Is it a major technology jump that we're not familiar with right now? Probably it's going to be new technologies that really become part of it. Is it um, conserving and reducing use? It's, you know, efficiencies and so forth. That's all part of it, right? The, The switch through our industry to natural gas from coal has been responsible for decreases in carbon emissions in this country, like significant decreases. Mm -hmm. And so it's been an amazing thing. So I do feel that we're part of the solution. I do feel that, you know, what we do is so important here. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility. For people that don't know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, sequestration is putting carbon, storing carbon dioxide in the ground to take it out of the, or taking it out of the atmosphere, putting it in the ground. Okay. And the idea behind it is the challenge there is how do you capture it and how do you ensure long-term safe storage? Because you have to understand like this is we're taking at high pressure injecting a gas into a critical state in the subsurface and trying to trap it in pore structure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, don't worry. Don't worry. I, I, may, have, I may have made that sound scary. Um, we have decades of experience in doing that. Because we used to call that enhanced well of recovery. We were injecting other types of fluids, including CO2, into the subsurface 
to liberate oil from the pore space. Yeah, we visited one of those in Croatia, I believe. Yeah. 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 Everybody seems to talk about when you're talking about climate change, how do you mitigate it? it everyone talks about net zero, you know, yeah. net zero by 2030, net zero by 2050, net yeah. zero by 2100. Yeah. Spending time in industry, seeing how it works, what net zero do- goals do you think are actually attainable? Okay. And I, I, this is a really good question, Jason. And this is what I think is I think all human industrial activity has impacts. And I think when we talk about net zero, I think we were overly confident. Okay, so let's give ourselves an example. Okay, so the solution to environmental emissions is full electrification of all commercial and res, uh, you know regular kind of private vehicles. Okay, so you do that. What's the other consequences of that? Like, how many batteries, what do we have to mine? How do we manage all of that cradle to grave? What are the specific emissions unique to that technology? Now, I agree, we need to go in the directions that are best benefiting society and having minim- minimizing environmental impacts. But I, I think what we're going to find out, it's, I worked with an ergonomics specialist when we were working on um, injuries at work while I was at Chevron. And they said to me, they said, we invent a brand new uh, input device like a mouse or the ones where you put your feet on pedals or whatever it is. And then 10 years later, we find out how they injure people. That's what they said about the general ergonomic, the ergonomics field is that then they find out. And I think that's what we're going to find out about a lot of technologies that we're using is that it may seem like it's a solution, but then you really start to see it at scale. And, and we really need to see it at scale. Because you have to remember, when we're talking about oil and gas and its impacts on this earth, we have to understand what kind of scale. Like, the majority of volume of all materials being transported on the ocean is hydrocarbon. Like, think about that. All the things that get traded all over the world, and hydrocarbon is the largest volume that's being transported on the sea. Okay, so this is a major system, and we got to see how other things are going to scale up. Now, I do subscribe to the idea that if we just try to drive this, okay, so let's, let's do that. Let's go 2030 net zero. Let's try that, okay? What does that mean? Like, okay, so how many things do we shut off? How many cheap, abundant, reliable sources of energy do we remove? And what does that do to cost, availability, access to energy around the world? And who suffers most? Yeah. And the answer is, I think we'll find that the poorest, the most vulnerable in the world suffer the very most when we start to have those types of decisions being made. And so I think we need to be, whatever we do, we need to think about the cost to humanity, to individuals, to people. And I think we're going to see that it's not a simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, one, one hour, 40 one minutes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It, it is my opinion that net zero, you know, should be the goal. But we need oil and gas to provide the energy to build the infrastructure, to lift, you know, people in poverty and even us into a point where we can actually reach net zero without, yep. you know, turning off a billion people's stoves and yep. heating and electricity. 
other than what you've already said, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I think um, I, I heard a quote that I really liked, and they said, "I hope with technology development that we'll get to a point that, given just how valuable hydrocarbons are, that we stop just burning them." I thought that was really interesting. What an interesting idea because we know that already. The hydrocarbons play a big role in all kinds of aspects of our modern society. In fact, you know, it's the old adage, if you go ahead and remove hydrocarbons from this room, we'd be surprised at how many things would fall off the walls and how many things would, you know, this couch would disappear. There's probably all kinds of synthetic threads that are in it. You know, there's all kinds of hydrocarbons all around us. And so I I do think that we're going to find that, um, you know, modern society is always going to need hydrocarbons, but we'll find better ways to manage emissions to, to get ourselves better in balance with our environment would be really, really beneficial, right? To ensure nobody wants to, you know, you know do anything to disturb that thin veneer that's keeping us alive or, you know, our lifeboat in this, you know, universe that's trying to kill us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that, or I've heard that, you know, these big oil companies like Exxon and Shell and Chevron, they're going to become quote-unquote energy companies. And in the sense that they'll they'll branch, branch out into other forms of energy like solar, yeah. Yeah. wind, hydrogen. Um, how true is that? And yeah. is that something that's already happening? Well, and so I can't, I, I don't speak for any particular companies when I'm talking here. Yeah. But it was really, really interesting. I was on a trip once, and I went to um, oh the Center of Atmospheric Studies or Science. Where, what is that? It's over in Boulder, Colorado, National Atmospheric something or the other. It's a really interesting facility. It's where they have the big supercomputers that run a lot of climate models. And so I went there and I visited. I was with a group of high-performing um, employees. And so they were asking, we were asking questions. And I could see, I could kind of, get a sense of how people were thinking like kind of like it seemed like there was kind of an adversarial attitude towards okay oil and gas people visiting right and so I asked the question I said okay you they was one of the directors there or something I said tomorrow you're the CEO of this big giant oil company okay what would you do your day one what do you do and I got it was a really fascinating answer they said listen you're an energy company. You're concerned with liquid portable forms of energy. I said, okay, I want. I would invest immediately in these. And, and now maybe that did, some of it didn't age well because they said at the time kind of biofuels, you know, kind of biofuel type tech, right? And, and, and he said, because that's carbon neutral. Okay. Now, what was interesting is that that's insightful on two sides. One, that, yeah. The infrastructure, the knowledge of being able to manage the subsurface and deal with different types of energy sources is always going to add value. We need that going forward. We need to have that capability. That's going to be there. I have good, I have, um, my conscience is clean when I'm educating students right now in our department that I am 100% sure they will have long, happy careers working in this subsurface field. Okay. Now, the other side of it that was really interesting was his forecast was somehow wrong. Because we learned something very quickly, didn't we? We said, oh, yeah, the answer is we'll use corn or whatever type of method. And then we, we you notice how nobody forecasted that? Nobody said, oh, it's going to become a food versus fuel competition. And food's going to lose out. And corn's going to become more expensive. 
and the very poorest of the world are going to start having hunger issues, right? Isn't that interesting? They didn't know that. And so it seemed like there was these systems are very complicated. They thought they had just, oh, yeah, this is all you have to do. No, you know. But I think, I think we will find that there's going to be lots of great things we can do. We're going to need portable energy sources. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting technologies developed there. And I think we're going to find that these companies, the big companies, they do spend money on research. They do innovate. In fact, every single major change in subsurface energy has been driven by big jumps in technology. And they're very good at that. So I do anticipate we're going to see in the future ongoing technological developments that are going to assist her. Yeah. It seems like a problem that, um, I mean, you seem pretty optimistic. And it seems like a problem that, you know, the solutions aren't necessarily there yet, but they do seem attainable, you know, wherever they are. Um, Now, talking about professorship versus industry a little bit, I remember talking to you in um, Croatia. I think we were walking up the mountain one time. And I was just like, kind of, how fulfilling do you find teaching? Like, I, I, I remember having this kind of itch to help people grow and to learn and and I wanted to ask you again about that. Does mentorship, mentorship provide you with feelings that you, you know, wouldn't find elsewhere? So um, I, I was inside the company for about 12 years. And I, was, I had doubled my salary in the first five years. I tripled my salary probably in the next, um, you know, four years after that or so. Like I was, I was doing great. And I reached a point where I kind of thought, what next? What, what is my life really going to be defined by? And um, I realized that more money wasn't it. Like just more money wasn't kind of the thing that ultimately drove me. Okay, so then I thought about it. And I thought, what days am I really charged? What days am I really excited? And I was teaching about six, seven, maybe sometimes less, five weeks a year, formally teaching inside the company where I'm acting like a professor. And I realized that those were the greatest days. Those are days where I was really excited. And that's what got me thinking about what I want to do. And then there were some other experiences. Uh, I lost my parents. Um, you know, and that, that was pretty heavy for me, um, losing them. And um, just thinking about what life is all about and the value of people and family and all that, right? And, and my kids growing up. And so that was about the time when I started kind of thinking about Maybe it's being a professor. That would be the exciting thing to do. Okay, so now let's fast forward. I'm a professor, and I got full professor. And that week, the next day, I had a meeting with all my PhD students, and they threw a surprise party for me. And I show up, and there's like uh, cookie cake. I don't like cookie cake, but I had a piece of cookie cake because it was so much fun. I was hanging out with the students, and we're all joking around, right? And then um, they said, Dr. Perch, we want to do a round and what we do when we have regular meetings, we do a round where everybody shares new, interesting things in their research. And what we usually do is we start with something inspirational. Like one time it was like, tell us something unusual about yourself that nobody else would know. And we found out that somebody's got like a black belt in something. Or, you know what I mean? We kind of find out cool stuff. Okay. They did a round where they talked about how I'd impacted their lives. And I, I didn't ask for that. I didn't expect that. And I just sat there. That's going to be heavy. And yeah. uh, I got to admit, I was a little embarrassed. You know, a little because, you know what I mean, I, I, it feels weird. 
it feels weird. To, so anyway, so they're going one after another. You always treated us with respect. Okay, that's cool. That's cool because you don't have to. You know, you as a professor, you know, you have a role where you don't have to do that. Well, I do. Okay, so that's nice. Um, you ta- taught me new things. You showed me new things. You 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 made me discover new things I was fascinated in, new interesting paths for my life, and you've changed my direction totally. Okay, that feels pretty good. That feels pretty good. There was the last student, and he didn't even start. And he was already crying. And he just said, when I couldn't, you taught me to believe in myself. When I couldn't, you taught me that. And I thought about that. I thought, wow, that was just, I did that. You know what I mean? Like, I'll tell you what. Um, we had a consortium meeting. Um, one of my students showed up with a hard copy, a hard copy of their thesis. And um, took pictures with them. Everything was cool. Took it home front page the front leaf was just basically the whole thing was handwriting just a big message about how their life had been changed and impacted by you know working with me even now it feels kind of weird to talk so much about it but you don't that doesn't happen and then I think about like even now I sit here and the generations are all tied together you know everything so many things I do are directed by how would my advisor have done it I was mentored. I was taught by a PhD advisor. And so I feel the same way back towards Clayton Deutsch. He changed my life. Do you know what I mean? So this whole thing, like I'm just here for in geologic time. I'm just here for a little blink of the eye, right? I'm not here for long. But I get to impact lives. I get to like leave that with people, like through people. To me, that's, um, what was it? I had a dream one time. This is going to get surreal now. I had a dream. And in the dream, I was building a model. And the model went wrong. And one of my dead family members showed up in the dream and looked at me and said, why do you care about that? That's just a bunch of dumb rocks. And what was interesting was right at that moment, in my mind, I saw my children at home while I was sitting there struggling on the model. And what was the message? Like it was, it was crazy. It was a message of you're spending all your time here, but what really matters is people. Yeah. This stuff. And so what's amazing about what I do now is I get to be technical. I get to be engineering, but I get to impact people while doing it, mm-hmm. which once, you know, you get, but you said it, you said at the beginning, Jason, you said some people work like balance. Their job is their hobby, but I get to do that and impact people while doing it. Super cool, right? That sounds like the perfect setup. Yeah. 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 The only thing I'd say is this is that you, you, the one thing I have not learned how to manage yet mm-hmm. is it is a tidal wave of need and you are standing there in the face of it. There is no shortage. I come to work on a regular day and I have two or three people invite me to speak in major venues. I have three or four students ask me if they can be my PhD student. I have, and that's just before eight o'clock in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Like I get hundreds of emails a day. I literally can't keep up with the whole thing. And so to be a professor, you do two things. You have to be super optimistic and have selective amnesia. You literally just keep going forward saying, I'm going to do the little thing I can do today. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to just forget about all the failures and all the things that I couldn't do. 
So just to sum it up, I mean, for someone listening that wants to teach others or wants to serve others, impact people's lives, it seems like teaching is a very worthy career to pursue. It, it, so remember when I talked about the friend of mine who'd been through all the companies and didn't enjoy? Yeah. I'm sure there's a million things that could make me not like this job. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure if I didn't have that selective amnesia, if I wasn't just walking around just optimistic and just excited about it, there'd be a lot of things that could drag me down. But this job is, it has absolutely no ceiling in the way you can impact others. Like, I get 20,000 views on my YouTube channel a month. Okay. I get contacted almost daily, like with those emails, daily from people saying I'm a student over here I couldn't learn this topic it wasn't working I found your channel and now I it's improved so much I've got emails from bosses managers who say half my team is using your code you're making us more productive thank you you know what I mean like this is this is amazing like we're really helping people and it's unlimited in the way you can help people I think it, I think it's incredible. So I may not win any big prizes here as a professor, but I hope when this whole thing is done, people look at me and say, you know, Perch cared. Perch tried to do something. It sounds like you've won some big prizes already with your full professorship <laughs> and tenure off the bat. Do you know what? And I want to give a shout out to our university leadership. Yeah. They read my, they read and they were touched by all the stuff I did to help people. They mentioned it. Isn't that cool? Like you might think it's a heartless system where you got to bring money in and, you know, it's based on number of papers only. They love that. I did that. But they also love the other stuff. They did. They love that. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to a researcher um, and he was saying that, like, he – there there's such a balance between – uh, competency and surrounding yourself with people that are just nice to be around because if you go down yep. the full competency route yep. you are probably going to be surrounding yourself with people that it, it's just not going to be as friendly but if you go to the yeah. um, purely surrounding yourself with people you like to be around yep. then you lose a competency aspect yep. of it and there's yep. there's such a balance there yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do think that it is possible to still be nice and be top in the field. I, I think I think ultimately this one thing I learned in industry with like leadership training is that your performance is directly proportional to the performance of your subordinates. And your perf- your subordinates perform better when they feel appreciated, when they feel respected, when they enjoy what they're doing, when they feel like they have freedom to try and to fail. Mm-hmm. And so what I've found so far is, okay, so I had um, 16 or so peer-reviewed publications last year. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I have a lot of good things going on right now as a professor. And you go into my lab and talk to my students, and um, I don't run a sweatshop. Like the students, uh, I, I motivate them to come to the office by randomly showing up and taking everybody who's there out for tacos. I'll just take everyone out for tacos. We'll have talks. We'll, we'll discuss. Um, the students are excited to do their work. So I actually, I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive. I think we can kind of have both of those things. Gotcha. Now, yeah. now here's the thing that's interesting, though. Surrounding yourself with people who see things differently, mm-hmm. 
that is interesting. Like I have found that, um, like when I recruit graduate students, we have a world map in our office with my student office. We have pins all over the world. And there's a lot of professors that kind of get a little bit of a funnel, a tunnel going from certain institutions to PhDs, you know, because they have centers of strength in the world. And, and I understand that clustering, right? But I don't do that. Actually, people are a little bit surprised by my system. I use more of a system. I review them and make sure that they have kind of basic capabilities and skills. But then I meet with them and I gauge the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I get a sense of that personality, whether or not they'd be willing to work with and help others and so forth. And so my team is full of people like that. They're doing great. When I talk to other professors about the standards I have for number of peer-reviewed publications for a PhD and a master's, people are surprised. And they're performing. They're doing very well. So... It is a very interesting thing. Um, now, can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. I was in industry, and I, saw, I went through the process as a team leader and seeing people get promoted. I saw, you know the personality where you don't get along with anyone else because you're that expert? You know that kind of personality? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I saw those people not get promoted to, to the really high levels in the technical career ladder because it was seen as a behavior that's not really leadership behavior so what am i saying hey you can you can be great in your field and you can also be really nice you know and and you're going to learn more from others and you can surround yourself with people you, that are totally different yourself and you're going to learn from them too yeah so i mean for you know say an engineering undergrad or someone going into industry um i think you provide really valuable insight not only working in industry and seeing people younger than you come in and come up, um, but then also recruiting graduate students. Would you say that for someone trying to make it into, you know, your pretty sought after research group or another research group or, you know, an internship that's very, very competitive, yeah. how much of the competency equation do they need? And then how much of the enthusiasm and the willingness to learn you know like um obviously you can't have you know no competency but just so much tenacity um you'd be a little uh imbalanced yep. but you can't have so much competency like you were saying with the people that think they're the expert yep. but then your people skills are you know not there and you don't have that much drive you know where does that balance lie i've had people come into my office and um, they've sent me their CV. And I've looked at it, I've seen it, I've seen that they have basic skills that I would want on my, in my team, right, my student team. But they showed up in my office and they said, listen, Dr. Perch, I was looking through some of your research and I have an idea of how to fix it. That kind of enthusiasm. That's pretty impressive. I, I like that. I don't mind being challenged. Okay. I have people who look through my educational content and say, hey, I like this lecture but what about a lecture on this? And by the way, I already worked up a workflow and here are some of the things. That's pretty impressive. That type of level of enthusiasm. Because this is the thing. I treat this as my hobby. This is my love. I code to relax. You know what I mean? Wouldn't it be great if my students are the same? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like Now, I'm not suggesting out of balance work like you know, work life and all that. But what I am suggesting is that same level of enthusiasm about it is essential. Now, it's interesting to me because now we're getting into the topic of how do we assess the ability to do research? And it's not just grades. 
it's not just uh, you know a standardized test it's this kind of creative mindset right how do you judge that I don't know. I don't know if I've dialed that in. I think if I did, I could definitely start a startup company that would, you know, I'd make millions helping people know exactly who to hire into innovative positions, right? But I do feel it's been working for me so far is kind of seeing that spark, that enthusiasm um, has been really helpful to kind of identify those people. Is the recruitment process between academia and industry um different in significant ways or is it similar oh good point um i was the hiring manager inside of my research center for a while so i was dealing with and overseeing how we were recruiting and um i've recruited a lot of students to join me um i give i have if anyone's interested you can go to my website or you can go to twitter i share kind of advice on things and one of the things i share is kind of how to get the job how to prepare for an interview and um that came from my time in industry but I really do have a sense that it would help you in academia also. Now, what they're looking for, of course, what would you emphasize? In academia, they really want individuals that are able to do innovative research. In some industry positions, they want that too. Uh, they're looking for good fit in the team, people who have kind of the ability to mentor and help others. That's helpful on both sides. So for me, maybe I'm unique because you're asking the professor who grew up in industry. But I have been using the approach that I learned in industry to recruit here. And so far, it's been working. Yeah, yeah um, it almost makes me think of that comprehension versus um, comprehension versus competency, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, is industry looking for competency while academia is looking for comprehension? Or is that... Um, Inaccurate. And 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that one, Jason, yeah. because this is something very interesting. Is that um, sometimes there's this feeling that academia is the home of uh, novelty, innovation. Industry is the home of practice, uh, best practice, established practice, right? And um, this is what I know is I came from a research center where two floors above me. And two floors below me, we all had PhDs from major institutions around the world. The people I cited in my PhD, many of them were five doors from me, down from me in the hallway there, working around me. Okay, so world's best experts in the field. We were conducting research that we would visit universities. And the professors came up to us, not for money, but to collaborate on the cutting edge research. You see what I'm saying? We were leading the world in the technologies we were developing. And in that times, universities were looking at us for leadership, technically. Okay, so I do have this perspective that that does happen in industry. On average, in expected value, because we're talking probabilistically now, right? Probably more innovation happens in universities and less in, uh, less in industry, of course. Of course, there's many people who are standard engineer like undergraduates go off and basically do standard engineering work with sometimes limited innovation. I, I hope that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's one of the reasons I did grad school. Because when I worked in the mine sites and I saw what I was doing, I realized that I always wanted to do kind of more innovative stuff. That's what drove me to a PhD. Yeah, that's yeah th- I know you're really busy. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, just where can people reach you? You know, what... 
where can people find your work? Where can what do is, is there anything you want to promote? You know, uh, where can people find you? Well, Jason, first of all, thank you very much for having me on, and I do appreciate you doing this. Your your heart's in the right place. You want to share knowledge, positivity, things of interest, things that lift people with others, and so to that I salute you. Thank you for making this effort to do this. Uh, th- the second thing is that uh, to find out more about you know all of the resources I give away. Just look me up as the Geostats guy, Geostats guy, or in my last name, which I'm sure will be listed on this. Just look me up by that. I'm one of the few perches uh, running around here in the States, and I share all of my content. YouTube, I have a channel which has all of my courses organized in playlists with links to all of the workflows that are used in the lectures on my GitHub account. You can download all of it, hundreds of well-documented workflows, interactivities, um, that'll help you learn about AI, machine learning, data analytics. So I'm happy to share that. I'm on Twitter. So uh, I, what I do on Twitter is I just share positivity. I'm a voice of positivity in that cesspool of hate. <laughs> so I do share positivity and just once in a while, maybe a kayaking picture or two. Right? I think, Jason, you were in one of those pictures. Yeah, I'm in a few of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> All, right. All right, yeah, cool. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you.